What pivotal role did megabanks like Goldman Sachs play in bringing on the fiscal crisis that has gripped Greece in the last five years? What would be the consequences for Greece if the new government follows through on its commitment to abandon the austerity programs and the bailout money that comes with it? Does the new Syriza government have the popular backing required to survive pressure from international lenders? What would a Greek departure from the Eurozone mean for countries like Spain and Italy facing similar fiscal woes? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we probe the political and economic dynamics that led to the recent Greek election results with guests Ellen Brown of the Public Banking Institute and Binoy Kampmark, scholar and RMIT University lecturer. On today's program, Greece from Austerity to Prosperity? Conversations with Ellen Brown and Binoy Kampmark. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of January 30th, 2015. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major stories shaping our world today, from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. Our show is also broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network on prn.fm. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Video evidence shows U.S. forces or Blackwater USA-type, now Academy, mercenaries in unmarked uniforms supporting Ukraine's military. When confronted speaking in English with clear American accents... It bears stressing, no evidence whatever suggests Russian troops in Ukraine. Plenty shows direct U.S. involvement. That's from the article, Putin's Message to Obama on Ukraine, by Stephen Lendman, posted January 28th. Because of Westminster politics, people in both cities and villages, wherever they are in the U.K., are being reduced to living a contradiction. As consumers, they are expected to keep the economy going, for which read making the rich richer, yet at the same time, Westminster is allowing them less and less money with which to buy and fewer and fewer public services which they have done their best to pay for by way of taxes and national insurance. Dorset is a rich con- county, but even small Dorset towns have food banks. Westminster is damaging the English as much as the Scots, and I, for one, am tired of being talked down to, of being told that it is the fault of the electorate that so few turn out to vote, of being told that the electorate is apathetic, and we need to talk to the voters more. That's from the article, Real Democracy Denied by Our Governments, a letter to the Scottish independence folk, I Want What You Want, by Leslie Doxey, posted January 28th. The over $6 trillion of taxpayer money and still rising that's been totally wasted in the destruction of Iraq and Afghanistan has only weakened and decimated America's middle-class tax base. And just like the Soviet empire, defeat in Afghanistan signifies an identical precursor leading to the collapse of the U.S. empire. 
The Western oligarchs know they are on the losing end of this impending collapse as the oligarchs from the east in Russia and China in a strengthening alliance have been coalescing its financial reserves into a growing, formidable U.S. adversary. Of course, what always happens in the face of stagnant and collapsing economies is the notion that more war can pull us out of economic lethargy when in fact war is always bad for the economy. The global transnational corporations President Eisenhower astutely referred to as the military-industrial complex that are the greedy war profiteers always make a killing from war and due to their neocon 9-11 gift inventing and waging its forever war of terror around the globe, the enormously gluttonous private defense contractors like Lockheed, Boeing, Raytheon, Northrop, and GE have never had it so good. That's from the article, War on a Global Scale, the First Man-Made Extinction on Planet Earth, The End Game's Final Solution, by Joachim Hakopian, posted January 28th. A substantial share of the increase in the U.S. military budget that President Barack Obama has asked for will ultimately be directed against Russia, a political commentator says, quote, I should mention that the F-35, the submarines, the ships, and so on are ultimately directed against China and Russia, unquote. Michel Chosodovsky, the founder and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, told Press TV on Wednesday, the Pentagon said that most of the military budget increase would go to the procurement of new war-fighting equipment as well as operations and maintenance expenditures. According to the Pentagon documents, the budget also includes $5.3 billion to equip and train Iraqi soldiers and the so-called moderate Syrian militants to fight ISIL. Chosodovsky, however, believes that the United States is actually financing the ISIL through Saudi Arabia and Qatar. That's from the introduction to Press TV's audio interview with Michel Chosodovsky entitled U.S. Military Budget Increase Directed Against Russia, China, and the Middle East. Michel Chosodovsky, posted January 28th. To the chagrin of the Obama administration and NATO, Russia has not invaded. This latest admission came twice today, once by inference and the other a direct admission from Ukrainian Armed Forces Chief of Staff, Lieutenant General Viktor Mushenko. Earlier in the day, Ukrainian military spokesman Lusenko said he was worried if a provocation happened, Russia would justify bringing in the Russian army. This was perfectly in line with General Mushenko's statements, which fully destroy Western propaganda and agree the Russian invasion of Ukraine was a hoax. That's from the article, Kiev regime confirms that Russian invasion of Ukraine is a hoax by George Eliasson, posted January 29th. The new king of Saudi Arabia, Salman bin Abdulaziz al-Saud, the half-brother of King Abdullah, who died in his early 90s from complications from pneumonia, is expected to rule with a more Wahhabist-oriented religious bent and concentrate on limiting cautious political reforms started by Abdullah. Salman is also expected to devote his energies to increasing Saudi national security. Salman's devotion to Saudi security is hypocritical at best due to his past support for al-Qaeda, including some of the individuals implicated in the 9-11 attack on the United States. It is Salman's involvement in allegedly financing 9-11 and other terrorists that will likely reinforce the Obama administration's refusal to declassify 28 missing pages from the 2002 Senate Intelligence Committee's report on the intelligence failures surrounding the attack. 
as the then governor of Riyadh, Salman's name likely appears as a big fish in the redacted 28 pages from the Senate report. That's from the article, New Saudi King Salman bin Abdulaziz, a major supporter of Al-Qaeda, by Wayne Madsen, posted January 28th, originally appearing at strategicculture.org. Four people have been executed in Saudi Arabia less than a week after 79-year-old King Salman assumed power following the death of his 90-year-old predecessor, King Abdullah. Under the strict guidelines of Sharia law, three people were put to death across the oil-rich kingdom on Tuesday. The spike in executions coincides with U.S. President Barack Obama's arrival to Riyadh on Tuesday at the head of a heavyweight U.S. delegation which met with King Salman. The delegation included Secretary of State John Kerry and CIA Director John Brennan, signaling the strong ties between the two states. The trip to Riyadh was an, quote, opportunity to both pay respects to the legacy of King Abdullah, who was a close partner with the United States, and also to touch base on some of the issues where we're working together with the Saudis, unquote. U.S. Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes told reporters. That's from the RT report. Four beheaded in Saudi Arabia less than a week into King Salman's rule, post-January 29th. The U.S. government has reportedly set aside several million dollars to help train the Ukrainian National Guard. Considering the fact that the National Guard was only reformed after last year's U.S.-backed coup and is made up in large part of neo-Nazis from the extremist right sector, one would hope some of the money is spent dissuading members from such an odious ideology. So there may well be Russian troops and equipment on the ground in Ukraine, though so far no proof exists and the Russians deny it. But we know very well that there are U.S. troops and heavy military equipment on the ground in Ukraine because the U.S. openly admits it. So Russia has no business claiming interest in unrest on its doorstep. But the U.S. has every right to become military involved in a conflict which has nothing to do with us nearly 5,000 miles away. It's from the article, American Troops in Ukraine? You bet. Posted January 29th, originally appearing in ronpaulinstitute.org. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. The austerity program imposed on Greece was a concession for alleviating the country's debt burden. The harsh conditions have led to considerable unrest and were more than likely responsible for the victory of an anti-austerity political party in the recent Greek elections. There's more to this crisis than a simple case of a cash-strapped government spending beyond its means. In fact, my next guest points directly at major investment banks like Goldman Sachs as having played a substantial role in the situation. Her name is Ellen Brown. Ellen Brown is an attorney, founder of the Public Banking Institute, and author of 12 books, including the best-selling Web of Debt and her latest book, The Public Bank Solution. She She joins us now by phone from Los Angeles. Welcome back to the Global Research News Hour, Ellen. Oh, thank you. Okay, now when you talk about austerity, I, my, my thinking about that term, it's basically another way of uh, basically starving the people in order to feed the banks. 
And uh, I, I think that uh, I've heard, seen through your articles uh, and uh, your radio show that uh, this uh, crisis in Greece seems to trace back to 2001 when Goldman Sachs was able to provide Greece with financial instruments that allowed them to keep their liabilities off the books. Do you think you can explain how that system works? Well, these were derivatives, off-the-book derivatives. So if you place a – derivatives are basically bets. So if you place – so if you've hedged your bets, you – it looks like – (laughs) well, it is a bit complicated, but it it looks like – you have more money than you have. In other words, you, it looks like you, you're, you've covered your capital requirements and so forth, but you may may not have. Some somehow they. I'm not. I don't know exactly myself, but anyway, they did manage to cover all that up because of off-book accounting. And then um, in 2009, I believe it was um, Goldman Sachs and well, some hedge funds got together and there was an article in I think it was the New York Times that um, a group of hedge funds had met and basically colluded to uh, bring down the to short sell the the Greek debt because before that the um, Greece and other countries seemed to be doing fine and I mean you didn't hear anything about it and then all of a sudden um, debt was a problem for these certain countries and Greece was the leader so, so these hedge funds got together and short sold the debt, or short sold the Greek debt, and that uh, forced the price up, and you know, forced their interest rate up. And then, if they weren't, so that plunged them further into debt because they had to come up with with higher interest. I know at one point their interest rate was as high as thirty percent, which is horrible. I mean, imagine you're paying a third again every year just for just for the interest. So that can quickly mount to the sort of level where your where your debt is growing faster than your ability to pay it off. <clears throat> so so ever since that, so then the Greeks, like the Irish, were forced to borrow from um, the Troika, from the IMF. And when when you borrow from the IMF, they um, put strings on it. So if you borrow from a regular bank and you go bankrupt, you just default on the debt. But if you borrow from the IMF then they force you to um, sell off your assets, lay off workers, and basically just downsize everything in in order to give all whatever money you have has to go, has to go to that loan. And of course, that means that the economy slowed. Supposedly, that was supposed to get them back on track, and then they would quickly the economy would quickly be thriving again. But it worked the other way. It meant that people were out of work. I mean, like there's I think it's I'm sorry, I've forgotten the figures, but I think the young people at something like 60% are out of work. And, of course, they're the ones that take to the streets and and, um, do political movements. And um, people are just generally suffering. Like, they they imposed... One problem with Greece, or the Greeks, is that they notoriously don't pay their taxes. I actually know a Greek, and he said the reason Greeks don't pay their taxes is that the government is corrupt. It's known to be corrupt. So so the government is sort of in bed with these big bankers and other big moneyed interests and people know that so they don't they don't want to pay to support something that's not helping the people. So that's why they don't pay their taxes. But anyway, so to get to squeeze more taxes out of people they imposed it on the on the electricity bill. So that meant that people were going without electricity because they couldn't 
pay these higher bills, and they were out of work. They didn't have jobs. So they're, they've gone on like this for the last five years, and things have just gotten worse, and the people have gotten quite um, upset and distressed with the whole thing. So now they're ready to risk being uh, forced out of the Eurozone or you know, so said so that the Sarita party that won, they won almost enough to have a majority in parliament. So they've they've um, formed a coalition with another minority party, which is the uh, Independent Greeks, which is actually a far right party. But they what they have in common is they're both populist parties that are vigorously opposed to um, to this austerity and to, and to not. It, they want to renegotiate the debt. Mm. I was wondering, Ellen, um, w- w- as far as the um, what the uh, like just last month they, in December they were uh, the, the ECB was sort of holding uh, um, a, a threat over the heads uh, of the Greeks, uh, essentially saying that uh, you know be very careful how you vote because. Uh, there's the prospect of, uh, of of withholding liquidity uh, that you know you would that basically they, they the country would the country's banks would need. Um, could you maybe explain the, the the significance of liquidity and and why that's uh, that would pose a, a, a threat to 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 Greece? Mm-hmm. Again, it was Goldman Sachs that made that threat in a memo. And it was to Parliament before they voted on – there was a vote in Parliament before they put the presidency out to the general population for election. That If if in Parliament they had elected the um, austerity candidate, then that would be the president. And so this was putting pressure on them to try to get this the candidate elected that would continue the current government. Um, and the threat was not that, well, your banks are in terrible shape and therefore we have to do something. The threat was merely that if you, you know, you rile up the, the banks, that your liquidity might be cut. Well, liquidity is something that every bank needs because the way banks work is that they, they take in deposits and they make loans by actually creating money on their books. So... When, whenever they have to, so they have to balance their books at the end of the day. And what they do is they borrow from their deposits. And if they don't have the deposits, then they borrow from the other banks. And if they, if the whole banking system doesn't have enough, then they borrow from the central bank. So the central bank is the backstop. That's what we have the Federal Reserve for. Before the Federal Reserve in the 19th century, we had like I think it was something like a a banking crisis every six years on average because the banks would just run out of gold. That's when um, that's when the reserves were gold. And if they would lend out the same gold that the people thought was theirs, you know, the depositors. So if the depositors and the borrowers came from their gold at the same time and the bank didn't have it, it would have to close its doors. So that that's what the Federal Reserve stepped in to change that system and at first, it was still gold, and then in 1929, or 1929, we had the, a big crash, and then in 1933, Roosevelt changed the whole system, and there was a banking holiday where they closed the bank stores, and when the doors reopened, Roosevelt said, New deal, um, no, we're not using gold anymore for reserves, so no problem, we're just going to create the money on our books. So, that, so that's what central banks do now. They're the ones authorized to create the extra backup money necessary 
to provide this liquidity for what is basically slate of hand, or you could even say fraud. I mean, all all banks do this slate of hand, where they where they actually lend money they don't have or create money on their books. Mm. Now, so it was just a threat to cut them off from operating as a bank. I mean, it wasn't like just because you're. Your bad, your banks are so bad that we can't give them liquidity. It was just like if you create a disturbance in the system, we can always cut you off. And they don't have a central bank anymore that can can serve their own interests. That that's the problem. In the whole eurozone, they have this one central bank, the ECB, that has total power to shut any bank down if they want. Mm. And uh, yet, there is the ability. Uh, as I understand it, under the current treaty, that they, they can uh, print, they can print drachmas. In fact, they can even print euros and use that as uh, their liquidity, at least to to spend on you know domestic priorities. Um, what uh, sorts of obstacles are there for implementing such a policy through their own central bank, the Greek um, central? Well- I wasn't aware that they. Could, I mean, you might be right. I I thought that they would have to leave the eurozone in order to. Um, create their own currency, um, and that's what I think they should do. That they should uh, p- draw on their own central bank, like they used to do, and use that money to service their own internal needs. Certainly, some place like Russia can do that, and it sounds like they're, you know, I mean, they're big enough. They've got every sort of resource that you m- you might want, and so they they're certainly capable of servicing their own needs. Greece might be too small. I don't know. I suppose they need. But anyway, the, for the the euros in Ireland, the Irish did were authorized to print euros through their own central bank. But I think that was a special special case because you know because they'd had this bailout and they'd agreed to everything and they were going along well, with the program. Well, so they were giving special special consideration that may I not think exist that's for Greece. True. Okay. Yeah, but maybe they'll get special consideration for the Greeks too. But it sounds like. The, the troika would rather hold this this hammer over their heads that you know don't don't try anything because we have the power to cut you off well they do have the ability as i understand it to you through their central bank through a publicly owned bank they could borrow from the the uh, the ecb at 1% interest rates right that um there is a provision in the, the treaty that um what the name of it is? Maastricht. Oh, right, the Maastricht Treaty that uh, says that uh, the central bank or that governments, the governments of the eurozone, cannot borrow from the ECB. That uh, that it's only banks that get this very low interest rate from the ECB, which at that point was one percent. Um, but that. There's an exception made for publicly owned banks. So I think that was mainly to cater to the German publicly owned banks, which they, they have a very strong public banking sector called Sparkasm. These are little local public banks that service their local communities. The Swiss have that too, which is pretty interesting. The whole Swiss system is really interesting. I, I If I had time, maybe next week I'll write an article on uh, what is different about Switzerland and why they had the nerve to... Uh, to lift the cap, in other words, they've they've separated themselves off from the from the euro, and you know they can do that with impunity because they have a totally independent system, which is owned 
their their central bank is not a central bank. It's a national bank. It's called the Swiss National Bank. It's 55% owned by the provinces of Switzerland. There are 26 provinces, and each one has its own publicly owned bank, which is just like the the Sparkasen. In fact, they're so similar they were invited to join the the Sparkasen group. So there, the when the Swiss National Bank just suddenly decided to to drop the cap before they had pegged the the uh, Swiss franc to the to the euro, but they just dropped that suddenly and they crashed some big hedge funds and there was a big uproar because you couldn't trust central banks anymore. But they had no obligation to anyone else. I mean, they're just servicing their own local people and that's their mandate and that's what they do. Hmm. Now, uh, under the current arrangement, I mean, if if uh, Greece were to leave the eurozone, uh, are there is there a risk of some sort of a uh, of the banks becoming insolvent, insolvent, and some sort of a a Cyprus style bail-in, uh, putting depositors on the on the hook? Well, a bail-in would be a lot more likely if they were still in the eurozone because it's a rule imposed by the the Financial Stability Board, which is part of the Bank for International Settlements, and it was something that the G20 nations, including the Eurozone, signed on to. So if, if the Greeks weren't part of that, then they could print money if they needed to to cover their you know, banking collapse, which is what I think they should do. Well, what is what are, is the advantage then of being in the the eurozone? Is it just the fact that you'll have, uh, you know, just in terms of Greece as part of a, a larger uh, globalized finances, and that they, that their currency would go a lot further? Or how, how does? I'm not sure I understand what the advantages are. Yeah, well, I think originally the deal was that it it was supposed to be like a trade agreement where you had much easier trade and easier borders. And so you were it was sort of like the advantages of being the United States of America instead of one just just one state. But the problem was, and everybody knew this was a problem when they first impl- implemented it, was that they didn't have a common government. They they were sharing, a, they were trying to form a common economy and a common banking system without having a common political framework like we have in the states. So they the the thought at the time apparently from what I've read is that is that they would come around to realizing that they needed to have a common um, political structure and that they would vote to be the United United States of Europe or some, something like that. But they haven't done that and they shouldn't do that. I mean they're they're they shouldn't give up their own economies and their own cultures for the inevitably the the strongest ones are going to come out the winners and the little ones are going to be like vassals. Mm. So um, I guess I, my final point, I, I know that you're such a, a big booster of, of public banks. Uh, I was wondering uh, what kind of advice you would be giving to Greece or to other countries like Italy or Spain that uh, may be eyeing the situation and uh, – uh, how, how would you advise them to proceed at this point? Well, apparently the Greeks themselves are not ready to leave the eurozone. They're a little afraid, as they probably should be, because what happens when they, if they were to go out on their own, is that the, the speculators would immediately short sell their 
their drachma, and and it you know it become heavily devalu- devalued rather relative to other currencies, which means prices would go up. So that would hurt the people who who have to buy imported goods. But since they're already in such dire straits, they're obviously willing to take that risk. And it seems to me that once they get over that initial adjustment, like that happened to Iceland, but they got through it and they came out much stronger than Greece, for example, which knuckled under to the to the pressures of the IMF. And apparently the pa- Padalone party in Spain, which is also a left-wing um, political party which which is you know pushing for anti-austerity just like just like the uh, Syriza party is they're right behind and they will do the same you know if it works out for Greece they'll be doing the same thing in Spain well Ellen and Brown Spain is a much bigger a much bigger <laughs> economy well really appreciate your insights Ellen Brown thanks so much for making the time to speak with us okay thank you Michael We've been speaking with Ellen Brown, attorney and founder of the Public Banking Institute and author of Web of Debt and the Public Banking Solution. She's a regular contributor to Global Research, and an archive of her numerous articles are available at the website ellenbrown.com. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. Last Sunday, January 25th, saw Syriza, the coalition of the radical left, secure 36.3% of the vote in the Greek elections and close to half of the seats in the parliament. They campaigned on an anti-austerity platform and are now planning to form a coalition with the right-wing ANEL, Independent Greeks Party, to secure the majority of seats. To discuss this development, to provide us some background and what it might mean for the future of the country and the broader European community, we're joined on the line by Binoy Campmark. Dr. Campmark was a Commonwealth scholar at Selwyn College in Cambridge. He is a senior lecturer at RMIT University in Melbourne and is a contributing editor to Counterpunch magazine. It's a pleasure to have you on, Dr. Campmark. It's a pleasure being with you. Okay, so uh, why don't we start first of all with the uh, <clears throat> what, what the economic situation was in Greece uh, in in the lead up to this election because it's been uh, hit very hard uh, by the, uh, the the austerity policies, uh, huge unemployment rates. C- can you maybe just uh, give our listeners a kind of a sketch of of what the situation in Greece has been over the last few years? Yes, uh, so essentially um, since the last election, so since 2012, uh, when in fact uh, the uh, Syriza and the party that you mentioned, which is now going to form uh, government, uh, made its appearance as a political force since 2012, essentially um, a center-right government has been in power, and it has been trying to deal with the situation of the austerity program, which it's trying to manage essentially by the dictates of what are termed the Troika, so for example, the European Central Bank, the European Commission, and the IMF. 
And the idea about this is supposedly to uh, keep, of course, uh, Greece going, but uh, under the understanding that liquidity will be provided if they restructure the economy accordingly. And that has uh, had considerable impact on the population. Uh, there is uh, growing poverty. There is an incredibly high unemployment rate in the 20s. In terms of percentage points, there's a very big problem with youth unemployment as well. Uh, there is a huge problem with, of course, uh, the welfare state having been shrunk. So all in all, it's a very dire situation in Greece. And Greece essentially has become a flashpoint in a broader debate about the euro, but also the eurozone and the way finances are managed within the European system, which is why uh, people are having such interest in the particular elections that just took place. Could you give us a little bit more background of Syriza itself and its leader, Alex uh, Tsipras? Yes, well, Syriza itself is a constellation of uh, parties uh, to the left, a very eclectic grouping of, uh, I suppose you would say, uh, socialist, left-leaning, progressive types who essentially formed um, five to six years ago uh, with an interest in challenging uh, the, the debt system, if you like, in the way that we've seen Greece fall into. And so uh, Syriza in itself is a constellation of gathering from previous parties that's developed. And uh, the very mercurial Alex Tsipras is an example of that uh, move. And he's um, been working in the background for quite some time, even though he's uh, quite young, but he's been working the universities, working the, the labor movements, and coming up with this narrative that the situation in Greece is deemed unacceptable, both in the Greek context, but also in the broader European context. And he, along with uh, others in Europe, are uh, starting to develop a response to what they perceive as this austerity dogmatism, essentially. And so that's what we're seeing developed at the moment. Okay. Now, I'm curious to know, uh, because I, I think for, from this perspective of people outside the country, the, the thing that stands out is the, uh, the, that uh, willingness to, to break away uh, from the, uh, this austerity plan. Uh, I'm wondering what... If you have a good read on exactly what it was that the Greek votes were, Greek voters were saying with their vote. I mean, what what does austerity mean to them, uh, or or for that matter, was there something else that was relayed during the uh, the campaign that that they were more gravitating to? I think there are several themes to note here, and themes that are important to consider when it comes to the result, and, and certainly the themes that came through when it came you know to the election. Uh, the first was the idea that they were being told, essentially, to shoulder uh, the deficit reduction. So, in other words, they are being grouped along with the countries, essentially uh, the poorer countries of Europe. Uh, so, for example, countries like Portugal, um, countries uh, to the south, essentially, of Europe, they're being made, essentially, the guinea pigs of uh, the austerity package program. So, in other words, they're being told, essentially, that there are... They were bad managers on their own, and they, as a result of that, have to pay the price. They did not keep the books in order, and for that reason, they must now uh, make amends for that. So that's one theme. The economic mismanagement aspect of it is one of them. 
but the second theme that's very powerful there is essentially the role of European institutions, and that's a very important one that was emphasized constantly in the campaign. It is, in other words, where does Greece fit into the management of debt? Where does it fit into the broader European scheme of things? Because one thing that is very evident is that the attempts um, in terms of financial ordering is one thing, but uh, in terms of sovereign will and democracy is quite another. So where does democracy fit in Europe? Because essentially it's not a particular democratic process to have a financial institutions such as the IMF and uh, the ECB, the European Central Bank, um, and the Commission dictate an agenda to a government that is popularly elected. So the issue then is, well, how does that fit into popular will and sovereignty? And some people have argued that the European Union is only superficially democratic. It's only superficially a representative body of the people and the residents within it. So that's the, the second theme. And I suppose the third theme, the theme, and that's a more um, uh, patriotic and nationalist line, some might even say jingoistic line, and that is, of course, the role of other countries in Europe, the richer ones, primarily Germany. Uh, there is a perspective in Greece that um, uh, the shadow of history is uh, casting its, uh, itself in the sense of uh, the German dominance of uh, the Eurozone and also the shadow behind the European Central Bank, which is financed, of course, by German capital extensively, and the sense that individuals such as Chancellor Angela Merkel have been at the forefront of the austerity ideas. So these are the themes that really make or have made the uh, issues very potent in terms of the vote. And um, so there, I would say, are the three main ones. There have been others, of course, individual. The sheer fact of how Greece has suffered has played dominantly into it. But those three themes are essentially the dominant ones. Hmm. Now, the uh, I'm, I'm wondering if the uh, this victory is uh, if if Syriza is in something of a precarious situation right now because it's uh, you know no doubt the the, the wider community is going to be putting its pressures on and I mean I'm looking at the, the results and apparently there was only about 63 percent of the population that turned out to vote. So I'm wondering just how strong the mandate of Syriza is and if they won't be somewhat uh, compelled to, to back away from some of their convictions during the campaign. Can you comment on that? Yes, it's, uh, it's true. Um, they are in a situation where the euphoria um, is you know, understandable in the context of how a party has come from essentially you know, from never being in government, a new party, and then being in a situation where they will be forming government. Also, I might add, with uh, a right-wing coalition, also an anti-bailout and an anti-austerity party, um, the independent Greeks. Um, so in, in itself, there's already the possibility of uh, problems in terms of certain policy goals, because even though uh, both parties uh, are very much united when it comes to Austerity, they have different agendas when it comes to foreign policy and so forth. Now, there are, as, as uh, commentators have noted, essentially chalk and cheese when it comes to that. So there's a first, there's a structural issue about how daily policy is going to work with the two partners. And the second thing, of course, is that what's going to happen in the European context, uh, there are already threats being made, and certainly in the week before the election, billions of euros were already withdrawn from Greece in anticipation of a possible Syriza win. 
Um, and, of course, there is the concern about uh, what will happen with the so-called Hellenic Banking Group Trust Fund, which is the fund that essentially administers the bailout. And so the question is, of course, that so the four major Greek banks are involved in it and uh, whether the European pressure will be exerted or the European Commission will exert um, pressure through finance to make Syriza you know, actually more compliant, if you like. And so the issue will be how much legroom are we speaking about here when it comes to negotiations? Syriza, of course, has some very big demands on the table. It um, is demanding a, a full renegotiation of the bailout package, and it's demanding uh, a mixture of uh, debt cancellation, um, you know, economic relief, and so forth across the board, citing uh, the arrangements that were made for West Germany in 1953 as an example. They're also trying to chase up Germany for a loan, which uh, they claim was uh, made under duress uh, by the Bank of Greece during the occupation period of Germany during the Second World War. Um, and then they've also been making a range of other promises. So we're talking about a considerable number of claims, but of course the negotiations of it and how telling it will be will once they actually get to the table and start negotiating with the likes of the European Commission and the IMF and, the, of course, the, the central bank. Now, I, I noticed that the, an, another party, Golden Dawn, uh, which is, uh, has a very, you know, I guess, you mean shady character in the sense of very anti-immigrant, uh, I, I, I noticed they got, came in third place. So I'm wondering what... Uh, um, what kind of influence, if any, they might have uh, if they are poised for even greater victories in the future? What, what does that development mean for the future of Greek, the present and future of Greek democracy? Well, they are um, considered quite a threat in the sense that uh, those who are dissatisfied, you know, with the with the orders it stands, uh, certainly cite uh, the uh, uh, golden uh, dawn as a considerable. Uh, threats in insofar as how they could capitalize on the situation. So Syriza's argument, to a large extent, has been that they're the better option because they, even though they channel a certain populist message, it's about restoring democracy rather than undermining it. They picture Golden Dawn as the uh, the negative approach to Greek the Greek crisis. And so, um, if the situation continues and remains unstable, then of course parties like Golden Dawn and, and uh, nationalist groupings like that tend to do rather well. And they, of course, are unabashed about uh, playing the narrative of Greece being sold out essentially to German bankers and uh, unabashedly playing the narrative that uh, Greece is a, you know, a colony within a, a broader colony, to use the expression of a Greek um, band from the 1990s. And so the perspective there is very uh, important and critical because Golden Dawn does certainly, is certainly a political force uh, and that may grow depending on, of course, how severe the situation locally in, is in Greece, uh, certainly depending on how successful Syriza is in staving off a further crisis. And... Um... Uh, as you, as we you mentioned earlier, there's the uh, Syriza is uh, in order to secure the majority in the the Greek Parliament, uh, he had to uh, the uh, 
the uh, Tsipras had to bring in the right-wing ANEL Independent Greeks Party. So how is that coalition uh, realistically going to affect what uh, Syriza uh, wants to do? Well, when it comes to the general platform that Syriza has, uh, the the anti-bailout platform, of course, is a very important one, and they have common grounds then with the independent Greeks. Uh, the idea of uh, a more equitable tax platform is fundamental, and that's certainly part of the plat- you know a common platform between the parties. There is this idea about, of course, generating a certain number of jobs, and uh, the magic number that Syriza has pulled out of the hat is, is 300,000. It seems to have been something they have come across in addition to the debt write-off strategy. And so these things are popular in the sense that both parties uh, do see that happening. But in terms of the implementing of uh, the structural changes that are needed, and you see the problem is uh, that a lot of this is being channeled through Greece, when in actual fact it's a European problem as well, very much, and not simply a Greek problem. So the Greek situation is hampered paradoxically by a European problem, even though the Greek, the Greek um, economy is deemed as uh, a case which requires special address. So that's what these parties uh, have to, of course, make, and it remains to be seen whether they have the temper and the metal, as it were, to pursue and sustain it, um, which will be uh, the first test of it, of course, will be the initial meetings. As far as the uh, you know, the wider community is concerned, um, I, I'm wondering what uh, is, is there a possible alignment uh, with the BRICS countries that could uh, help you know help you know e- provide them with some sort of a path to uh, to recovery. Well, one of the interesting things about the development here is that Syriza has stressed the importance of Greece's relationship. It certainly, it has a historical relationship with Russia, for example, and so there's certainly, you know, the possibility um, that uh, the relationship there will be firmed up. Um, Syriza has been a very firm opponent, for example, of the the strategy of sanctions that has been adopted by the EU and the United States regarding um, Russia's uh, involvement in Ukraine. Uh, and it, the series has made it clear that Greek exports, as a result, uh, have affected or been affected because of these sanctions. And so the Greek market has also suffered as a result of the broader policies towards uh, one of the BRICS countries, and that's Russia. And, and of course, uh, the other thing to keep in mind is greater Chinese involvement uh, in the area. The uh, Chinese uh, state-owned Chinese corporations have been investing in Greece, and, for example, you can see extensive infrastructure development in the port of Piraeus uh, from Chinese state-owned enterprises. So there's no question that, you know, if Tsipras uh, and Syriza played well, they can certainly get other countries involved more extensively, 
which have essentially to date been left out of the equation, largely because, of course, of the previous government having a, a close uh, relationship with the authorities in Europe. And so that could be a very interesting development when it comes to Greek foreign policy, uh, the role being played by countries such as uh, Russia and China when it comes to this too. And then that's, that's one aspect of it. And the other, which is rather interesting, is to see what parties such as Syriza and other countries do. And I'm, I was thinking, for example, of a very similar style party in Spain, uh, which uh, is po you know, poised to actually do very well in forthcoming elections on the next electoral round, and that's Podemos, uh, which has a very similar platform to Syriza. So there may be common ground struck with other countries as well in due course. Mm. Now, what, what kind of role are uh, non-parliamentary actors, such as the, the unions, uh, what, what role are they playing in trying to uh, resist the, the austerity program and, and maybe push uh, Greece in, in a certain direction? They've been uh, very significant, actually, in this groundswell of dissatisfaction. So they've been trying to um, provide uh, the ballast, as it were, for the Syriza movement. The unions are uh, playing a very dominant hand, for example, in the mobilization drives that have been taking place. Uh, they were very strong in terms of representation during the, uh, during the election. And uh, they, of course, uh, have been trying to make their voice felt in terms of uh, agitating on the path of the unemployed and trying to deal with this unemployment figure. Uh, whether, of course, structurally the particular instances of it can manifest with greater job, you know, with greater number of jobs is something that's still the open question because Syriza uh, is not very clear where it will get, for example, with 300,000, but it's certainly relying on uh, the uh, Greek, um, say, for example, the union movement and civic, broader civic and non government actors to play a hand in this. But of course, these are, these are very much part of what Cyprus calls the revival of democracy, the idea of democratizing the system even more, because there is a broader sense of, and a feeling that uh, anti-democratic institutions have begun to flourish in the EU itself. And by that, I mean banking institutions or shell, the shell that is the EU, rather than actually having popular elected institutions, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Now, even if uh, the uh, Syriza is the, the, the Greek government is successful in uh, securing debt cancellation and a readjustment of the terms of the bailout, um, Greece will still have ongoing problems, uh, it, will it not? Uh, yes, uh, it will have ongoing problems because there will be ongoing problems associated with the Eurozone, which is, of course, why we have a situation where, you know, when, when for example, the Maastricht Treaty was uh, negotiated in the early 90s, uh, this was all to the good with uh, a few gaping problems. And uh, one of the, you know, I can name but a few, one of the, the dominant problems was not having a supervised banking system um, in terms of an entrenched supervised banking system. And, and the other was also the a refusal to adopt a policy which was actually discussed uh, when the Bretton Woods institutions were being set up after the Second World War. Now, of course, examples of the Bretton Woods institutions include uh, the World Bank and the IMF and so forth. And the issue was that when it comes to dealing with uh, economic disturbances, 
uh, of the microeconomic sort that we see in Greece uh, and other parts of Europe, there has to be shouldering that takes place between those in deficit and those in surplus, you know, areas of Europe with stronger economy and so forth. And there has to be a shouldering together in a synchronized approach to it. And this was never done. Um, and that leaves the problem that irrespective of whether there's debt cancellation, irrespective of whether Cyprus pulls this off in terms of renegotiating the bailout package, um, you know, uh, relief and so forth, the problem of Greece and the problem of Europe does not go away because the institutions themselves need reforming and the entire banking sector needs reforming. And so I'm afraid to say that uh, the issue will still remain and a lot of this however successful you know, Cyprus will be, will probably depend on how broadly the agenda he's stating will be uh, insinuated into Europe more broadly speaking. Mm. So what, uh, looking ahead, what would you say would be the, the, the best case scenario for Greece? What would be the worst case scenario? Well, the worst case scenario is that it, it all collapses and we return essentially to the situation um, about, that we had in 2012 when um, the, essentially uh, the referendum that was proposed in 2011 about Greece and the bailout was uh, quashed by then uh, President uh, Sarkozy and uh, Vice Chancellor and Chancellor, sorry, Chancellor Merkel in Germany. Um, and then we had the 2012 compromise, which resulted in, of course, the package which we then have to deal with now, which Syriza has essentially um, uh, promising to move. So the worst case uh, scenario would be to simply repeat what has been happening, namely, uh, there will be a continuing cycle of austerity. There will be no growth. In fact, growth rates in, in Europe are very sluggish across the board. And uh, there will be an increase in unemployment, greater instability taking place there, and no redress of the situation. Uh, the best uh, case scenario that I suppose you can really hope for here is that uh, Syriza manages to find a way of alleviating the problems, at least in the short term, for Greece, Though, of course, uh, you would hope that other things follow from that, uh, triggering local growth, um, triggering uh, employment, a rise in employment figures. But these are going to be very difficult to address for the reasons we've discussed, um, that essentially the solution to the Greek problem is in many ways more than a Greek problem or Greek solution. It's actually a European solution to the Greek problem. So are you looking at other countries that are, are suffering similar hardships? I mean, are there any in particular that you have your eye on that are uh, you know, maybe looking? Yes, yes certainly. Um, and uh, you keep, for example, you have to keep an eye on, on countries such as, uh, you know, Italy, for example, which has uh, individual, um, you know, such as Rienzi, who's, who is, of course, uh, on the one hand, much of, of this technocratic uh, European mold, um, and uh, there are local Italian parties who are also essentially mooting the line of Syriza. You have Spain, uh, as I said, with Podemos, which is very, very um, you know, performing rather well at the moment and certainly stirring the pot. And then you've got uh, countries uh, such as, for example, um, Ireland, which is not doing very well. And you've got uh, countries, uh, essentially the emerging ones that have been and have joined the Eurozone countries such as uh, Lithuania, the newest member, the 19th member, 
uh, whose economy is actually rather poor. And then you've got, of course, the newly admitted and the states um, that have come into it uh, from the Balkans, states like Croatia. All of these states have problems, essentially, with the structure of Europe and the economic structure. And so Greece is, in a sense, uh, you know, the problem writ large for Europe. And that's where you can see other problems emerging. And by no means uh, is it unusual or can we expect that this is not going to continue in in other European countries. Mm. So I I guess uh, my next question is, uh, are we... Is this election signaling the beginning of the end of the Eurozone as we know it? Well, that's, that's of course, the, the very important question, which, uh, you know, will be hard to answer in, in, in an except in due course when we actually see whether the Maastricht uh, Treaty itself, I suppose, the dimensions of it are renegotiated. If that is the case, then we can see a change as we know it. We will certainly see the Eurozone change as we know it if the basic fundamentals of Maastricht are renegotiated and dealt with. Um, it won't change if, for example, one country leaves. That in itself, for example, one scenario, of course, has been posed that Greece uh, might leave, the so-called Grexit, which has been voiced. But even if that's the case, that's hardly going to necessarily end the situation um, in the, end the Eurozone. The Eurozone is probably still going to function. But... It is very hard to see it functioning well without key institutional reforms in the banking sector, in the way the economies are managed alongside each other, be they you know, investment-heavy in the form of the German economy, or be they uh, commodity producers you know, and um, light on heavy industry. I mean, these things have to be sorted out. And without dealing with that, um, you can see the Eurozone probably still creaking along, uh, but with these imperfections that will keep having these threats about stability come and assail it. Well, uh, Dr. Kampmark, uh, these seem to be very uh, historic uh, developments, and uh, we're certainly going to keep our eye on it, as I'm sure you will as well. Thank you very much for sharing your perspectives with us. Hey, it's a pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. We've been speaking with Dr. Binoy Kampmark, a former Commonwealth scholar at Selwyn College in Cambridge, a senior lecturer at RMIT University in Melbourne, contributing editor to Counterpunch, as well as a contributor to the Global Research website. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.